Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Curtis Lockhart, head of research at the Charter Cities Institute. Our guest today is Matthew Kahn. Matt is a professor of economics at Johns Hopkins University, where he's the director of the 21st Century Cities Initiative. His research is in both urban economics and climate change and environmental economics, often focusing on the consequences of climate change for urban quality of life. He's written several books on these topics. The two most recent are Unlocking the Potential of Post-Industrial Cities and Adapting to Climate Change, both of which were published this year and both of which we talk about today. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Curtis. It's great to be here. Okay. So as I mentioned, I got some questions here. Let's jump right in. In your recent book on adapting to climate change, you talk about there being this uh, window of opportunity when a crisis happens for politicians to enact pretty deep reforms. And we could chat about the pandemic, but because you focus on climate change, I wanted to ask, first of all, you know, in Texas, with the current blackouts uh, caused by the winter storm, what the hell happened there, number one? And then how do you think Texan politicians should learn from this blackout in the state right now, uh, right? How should they adapt to prevent future climate shocks from causing similar damage? So Curtis, I'm a microeconomist. And uh, of course, I understand that our elected officials and public utility commissions play a big role in our lives. But in my book and in my life, I'm always focused on individual actors of people, households, and firms, and local governments. And so what I think happened in Texas, and I have so many questions just like you, is first of all, there's a question of probability assessment. For the very cold weather that just occurred in the Texas freeze, what were folks' subjective expectations? Apparently nobody saw this coming. Um, One of the reasons that North Dakota doesn't suffer when these freezes occur is they expect there to be freezes in winter and they have adapted and they're prepared for this. In the case of Texas, this was a shocking event. So Curtis, to begin to answer your question, One of the themes in my book, Adapting to Climate Change, is for people to be more humble and acknowledge that there are known unknowns. If the people of Texas know that they don't know what is the probability that there will be a freeze in February, they take more precautionary steps. They're more likely to install insulation in their homes. They might have backup power generators. And so notice here, I'm making the private sector a key actor here. In my writing about the Texas freeze, I've asked, why didn't the Texas regulators sign up more households and other consumers of electricity for critical peak pricing? Why didn't the state come up with using incentives 
to identify more economic actors who would cut back on their consumption during, during a time of scarce electricity. So there's a lot of talk about frozen wind turbines and supply side meltdowns during the freeze. There isn't a lot of talk about how to use economic incentives to marshal demand side forces. And so uh, I'm always an economist and always thinking about supply and demand. If electricity is scarce, how do you incentivize those who have the capacity to cut back on their electricity consumption to do so? So Curtis, to give a final example before, before I stop talking here, during the freeze, did any buildings in Dallas and Houston have their lights on that night? And if the answer is yes, that's an example of sort of wasted power. Why weren't those guys incentivized to turn off their lights? And critical peak pricing would have done that. Okay. And your your climate book, just to continue on that vein, it's competing with another famous guy's climate book at the moment, Bill Gates, <laughs> recently published uh, his, his book, Avoid a Climate Disaster. I don't know if you had the chance to peruse it, but from my skimming of it and reading of yours, they seem to broadly align, right? You, you focusing on the importance of human capital and him on technological innovation. Like you, he also focuses a lot on the private sector. But would you call out any areas where you differ at all between the two? So this is a crucial question. Chapter nine of his book is the only chapter of the book on climate change adaptation. Almost all of his book is focused on shrinking our collective carbon footprint. In the first chapter, he talks about, he anticipates criticism that he has a big carbon footprint. And he talks about his airplanes and he talks about what actions he has taken to offset his carbon footprint. And I think that's terrific. But Curtis, he only has a very slim chapter on adapting to climate change. And that's the only topic in my book. And if I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Gates, what I'd like to chat with him about is this asymmetry in his thinking. There is so much optimism about human ingenuity in shrinking our carbon footprint. For example, you and I never having a hamburger again, of having some impossible burger together, of you and I driving, I just bought a Tesla, you're welcome to come for a drive with me, of how we live a low-carbon life. But Curtis, if Bill Gates is much smarter than me, much richer than me, and has much more hair than I do. Uh, both of our sons are at the University of Chicago, and I've encouraged my son to try to meet his son. Um, but that's a subject for another day. What I would want to push Mr. Gates, the Harvard dropout, the genius on, is why is he so optimistic about our ability to mitigate our carbon footprint while pessimistic about our ability to adapt to climate change. In my world, there are two legs of the same stool, that the same human capital and new markets that create the Impossible Burger or the electric airplane also give us the technologies to build better air conditioning that can better withstand extreme heat, to come up with ways to economize on water using water pricing, to economize on living in flood zones, and if we live in flood zones, to build with better materials such that we can withstand flooding. And so, Curtis, there's so much optimism in Mr. Gates's book about carbon mitigation. And yet I would say, yes, it's a little bit politically incorrect, but the same logic applies to our ability to adapt. Coming back to your point about the Texas freeze, when we anticipate we have a problem that actually creates a market for solutions and some next Elon Musk will step up with a solution because when billions of us face a challenge, as we've learned with COVID, 
we get these vaccines under Operation Warp Speed. And so that would be my question for Mr. Gates. Why so little discussion of adaptation? And why focus on the, you mentioned in your book, there are kind of two strategies to a response to climate change. One is mitigation, one is adaptation. He focuses on the former, your book, definitely all on the latter. And that's, is that, that's just based on the premise that you're assuming there is going to be some impact in the upcoming decades. I think the stat you used to justify your focus on adaptation was say, you know, fast forward a decade or two and China reaches the same car ownership as the United States. A lot of those cars likely are going to use fossil fuels uh, unless Elon Musk uh, becomes even more of a genius and figures a way to wrap up his electric vehicles even quicker. But that was, I think, I remember the fact you used to say, guess what? If developing countries um, kind of take a similar trajectory and path to developed countries, and they use fossil fuels even partly to do that, then we're going to have to adapt in some way or another. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, yes, it is. Jared Diamond, in his work on collapse, actually said mm-hmm. that developing countries could not achieve the American dream, but that we have to limit the economic growth of those countries in order not to set off a nightmare. Uh, Curtis, I want to add a sentence there. I would love it if we sharply reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. But in a world where Africa is now creating its own middle class, India, a nation with 1.3 billion people who want to live the American dream, this is going to be fossil fuel intensive. I don't see wind turbines and solar panels fueling electric vehicles in India. I, I see a continued reliance on fossil fuels. And so First of all, I would love to agree with AOC that we will make this deep decarbonization. I think it's unrealistic in the developing world because the people in the developing world need energy. They need more energy consumption to achieve everything we take for granted, including creating this podcast. And thus, greenhouse gas emissions are going to continue to rise. And as we just learned with the Texas freeze, we, um, we have to confront the adaptation challenge as individuals and our governments as well. But we'll be talking about that in a moment. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to cover two of the broad themes that I saw in both, both of your more recent books. By the way, congratulations on publishing two books uh, within the first two, two months of 2021. You are one of the productive ones in, in this pandemic. So one of the themes that I took from both, I mean, your work in general and, and these two more recent books is that cities with high quality of life, they attract skilled people, number one. And then number two, they attract firms that hire those people. Uh, so that's that's kind of the first theme. Uh, so cities want to aim for giving their citizens a high quality of life. And then the second theme, which is the one I, I have some questions about here, is oftentimes urban governance is plagued by misaligned incentives, right? Elected officials think more short-term, especially local or city officials, because cities are often a stepping stone to higher levels of office. Uh, so they want they want quick wins. So my question is, what, what can cities do about this fundamental incentive misalignment at the local level? So Curtis, a big theme in my life's work is that cities with great quality of life The mayor can sleep well at night because he or she knows that the tax base will remain there. Jobs and people will live there even without generous incentives to be there. 
because of this sort of uh, chicken and egg issue that footloose skilled workers want to be in great places and jobs that want to hire them will co-locate there and sort of create a domino chain. Now, a mayor of such a city has a really good tax base, but at the same time, climate change actually can mash up the quality of life rankings. For example, Manhattan faces significant sea level rise challenges that many entities are deeply concerned about. And entities like First Street Foundation are mapping these risks. Curtis, you raised a key question uh, stating that mayors face term limits and these men and women may only be mayor for the next four or eight years. If climate change is a 20 to 50 year issue, what are their incentives to address the issue now versus to kick the can? In my new book, I talk about the following, and this is an empirical hypothesis that may be false. Curtis, it's been found by real estate and urban economists that home prices reflect future expectations. And I'll give an example. If there's a neighborhood that is safe right now in Los Angeles, but it is expected that crime will rise, perhaps because more UCLA students will be moving there. My wife teaches at UCLA. Uh, that was a joke. But I do teach at USC and at Hopkins. So if there's a neighborhood which currently is safe, but is expected over the next couple of years to become more dangerous for some reason, home prices will be low relative to rents there today because the market expects that the quality of life will fall in the future. So Curtis, if you give me the following assumptions, if real estate investors are forward-looking and if they bid less aggressively for properties that are going to face extreme heat in Phoenix or going to face sea level rise in Queens, New York, then the homeowners today of these assets actually have strong incentives to lobby the mayor to mitigate the urban heat island effect in Phoenix and to invest in sea level rise protection out of their own self-interest. So Curtis, notice this isn't an AOC environmentalist issue. This is actually a free market asset protection issue that the owners of these assets would approach Bill de Blasio and, and Governor Cuomo and say, we need new infrastructure to protect our asset values because if we don't make these investments, potential buyers of our assets are going to bid less aggressively because they expect that these assets have a challenge. So Curtis, let me add one more point. Mayors would not have an incentive to protect the real estate tax base today if potential buyers are ignorant of future risks. And so this makes information about emerging climate risks so important to have an efficient market. Yeah. And we will, I ask, I'm going to ask you about big data. You talk about it in both of the recent books. So we'll discuss it a little later. But just another point on the kind of short termism of especially city politics versus kind of the benefits that a more long-term view would have, especially when it comes to climate change, which is a long-term issue. You know, you, you mentioned you went to University of Chicago, and I, I see Chicago is kind of confirming this, right? Because I think it's sort of unique among post-war era cities in that two mayors, right, Richard Daly and, and then his son, served for, I think, from last time I checked, it was over 40 years, right, between 1955 and 2011. And, you know, say what you will, but for Midwestern cities in in the post-war period, Chicago has done quite well. So, you know, is this just random correlation? Or do you think there's something to the story here that there was long-termism in the case of Chicago that helped them out? I love your question. 
To indirectly answer your question, University of Chicago economists argued that companies' bosses should be paid with stock options to give them an incentive to invest in the long-run fiscal health of the company. Like I think Elon Musk, most of his pay is tied to Tesla shares. Curtis, in a similar sense, I've argued that mayors should be given parcels of land in their city and and that that would give them an incentive to have a long-run perspective. Because um, from David Ricardo, the famous economist from a few hundred years ago, land prices reflect the present discounted value of the future dividends to a place. So if a place like Baltimore is on an upward trajectory, land prices, according to the efficient markets hypothesis, reflect that today. And so I love your question of how do we incentivize mayors to to take a long-run perspective? And if these men and women are paid with land in the same place, this is one way to tie them down. Curtis, I want to add a new point. Just as Coke and Pepsi are rivals, just as Uber and Lyft are rivals, cities like New York and Boston are rivals to attract skilled people and jobs. If one city, like the cities in Texas right now, fail to deliver quality of life, that can trigger a brain drain. And so one part of my optimism about our adapting to climate change is this competition between mayors, that mayors will lose their tax base if if they fail to protect their citizens from emerging shocks. Okay. And I guess, you know, while we're on the topic of urban governance, you mentioned one of the tough realities of U.S. cities politically is that they're just not that competitive, right? You mentioned competition in your previous answer. Democratic candidates tend to win pretty heavily. Voter turnout tends to be just depressingly low at the local level. How does the this political uncompetitiveness affect service delivery and public goods provision in cities? And are there any promising solutions to this? So this is a very important point that I actually think we need more research on. In a paper that I co-authored in the Journal of Public Economics, we showed, we used the price of moving a bus a mile, a public sector bus a mile. So it's very difficult to benchmark the competitiveness of governments. And so our metric was what does it cost in dollars to move a bus a mile? A public transit bus is a simple technology. You need a bus, a driver, and a gallon of gasoline. And so it's relatively easy to price that out. And we documented that major progressive cities like New York City and Boston have very high cost of service delivery. And so Curtis, my question The flip side of paying public union employees very well, cops, bus drivers, teachers, the flip side of that is that taxes are going to be high in these cities. And so to an urban economist, the key issue is the following. Does a city like New York City have such unique amenities and quality of life that people want to remain there despite the high taxes. California has really high taxes, a a marginal tax rate of 14%, and it can get away with that in part before the rise of work from home because of the great amenities that California has. So a two-part question, a two-part answer. If a city or state has fantastic, unique amenities that no other place has, it can have a relatively inefficient public sector. But Curtis, I know that you have a deep interest in charter cities. The rise of charter cities, whether in the U.S. or around the world, poses more competition. And we know from basic economics, when there's more competition, that chips away at monopoly power. And so if a charter city emerged 
with services and restaurants just as good as New York City's, but with lower taxes, then New York City, there'd start to be a brain drain from New York City to that charter city, and that would get the next Bill de Blasio's attention, and he would negotiate harder with local public sector unions when the next contracts come up, because he'd see that the tax base is walking away. So, Curtis, my question for you is, I am a big believer in the benefits of competition and that inefficient places will begin to have a brain drain and that this begins to bring about political reform. Is that a controversial idea? So if mayors want to have a sizable tax base, do they eventually reform their inefficiencies if the tax base is voting with its feet to run away? Yeah, I mean, this is why... You know, we've probably both read Tebow and we both believe in Tebowian competition. You know, a lot of my research focuses on political decentralization. You tend to focus on the states. I My focus is on sub-Saharan Africa. And it's been historically post-colonialism, post-1950s, uh, 1960s. It's been very centralized. But there have been reforms since the 80s and 90s to decentralize political institutions. And... I'm trying to see how that's impacted public service provision. And from my reading of at least the countries that I've looked into, it's had significant benefits. And so I, like you, find that subnational competition, whether it's subnational regions, right, states, provinces, et cetera, or municipalities competing against each other is, is a healthy, healthy thing and should be encouraged. Which kind of leads me to my next question, which is, um, I'm not sure if you saw the governor of Nevada, he gave a, what is it called a state of the state uh, address or something like that recently. And he proposed, I think he called them innovation zones in Nevada. I think it, the policy at a high level would be, he would essentially allow tech companies to have all of the the powers of a county in essence. So they could, you know, have their own courts, they could have their own school districts, they could run their own, et cetera. Everything that a county could do, these tech companies could do. So my question, I don't know if you've seen it, but what's your initial reaction to that proposal? So urban economists have been very interested. This sounds a little bit like the economics of shopping malls. So Donald Bren became a billionaire in Orange County, just south of Los Angeles, by building up these suburban communities that have all of these amenities bundled into it. So Curtis, what you sketched out sounds a little bit like an industrial park as a city. And my two-part question there is the following. Something that in my early work with Ed Glazer, we wrote a, with Jordan Rappaport, we wrote a famous paper called Why Do the Poor Live in Cities? Curtis, my quick reaction to what you said is, if Matt is part of a poor family, and if I try to move to this area, will there be a force field keeping me out? What will be the opportunities for the poor who migrate to this area, or will there intentionally be barriers to, to zone out this exclusive zoning to keep out the disadvantage? So did, did, did the governor say anything there about this new entity? Well, I think after he said it, there was a lot of a lot of blowback. And so I'm not sure how politically feasible it'll be. We have uh, Jeff Jeffrey Mason. One of our researchers here at CCI did a legal analysis of the actual piece of proposed legislation. So that's on our website and we'll link to it in the show notes. But I'm not sure what, what the steps have been since since he uh, proposed it. Yeah. 
Let me say two things there. In the Journal of Urban Economics, with my Chinese co-authors, including Si Chi Zheng of MIT, we wrote a paper called The Birth of Edge Cities. And China has been taking farmland and has effectively been building um, charter cities at the fringe of major metropolitan areas to try to relieve some congestion in these center cities. And Curtis, a big finding that comes out from our work, and you'll find this funny, hopefully you'll find this funny and interesting, is when when the industrial parks feature communist state-owned enterprises, there are no positive synergies in these parks. But when it's private companies, you get all of the Glazer, Moretti, Vern Henderson synergies between these firms. So the Communist Party in China is learning that you get greater productivity spillovers when you have fewer state-owned enterprises in close physical proximity. And so my own work in China shows that you can get an industrial spillover. And I'd like to add one point. Curtis, a great book that didn't get enough attention is a book by Simon Johnson and by Jonathan Gruber. And I'm forgetting the title of the book, but in their book, they talk about one way for America to get our groove back in terms of economic growth is to build more science parks in cities next to our great universities, sort of like with Carnegie Mellon with robotics, the equivalent of Silicon Valley with Berkeley and Stanford. And so Edison, Edison did with his laboratories, right? Yeah. You're absolutely right. So University of Nevada, Las Vegas is good. It would interest me in the case you mentioned of what is the role for the universities to get their nerds close to these new firms. And the reason this matters for my books is we will need more new ideas and innovations to adapt and to get to Bill Gates's synthetic meat and everything else we're going to need. There's a question, how do we have public-private partnerships to maximize our productivity growth? America's growing too slow right now. And if we have more of these new cities that you are talking about, we both run these experiments to see what works, and we can see if we can unleash more of our productivity. Yeah, and you mentioned your 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 paper on um, Chinese industrial parks. So I'm I'm gonna ask about that because I wanted to talk about kind of different urban policies that you mentioned in both your books. And one set of policies is place-based policies, right? In the U.S., you seem to come to the conclusion that these place-based policies work less well. I'm thinking of opportunity zones, uh, community development block grants, empowerment zones, and the others. But right, you've also, you mentioned this paper of industrial parks in China, which is in essence a place-based policy and the positive impacts and spillovers those parks had in these Chinese cities. So what's, what's your take on why place-based policies seem to do well in China, but, but not so well uh, when applied in the U.S.? This is a fantastic question. Abe Glazer and I were classmates at the University of Chicago. And back then, 30 years ago, when I looked more like you and was younger, the um, Chicago economists tended to assume that migration costs were zero. So if you're not doing well in Baltimore, you just zip off to Shanghai or to Las Vegas, wherever there's a job. So Curtis, in a world where migration costs are low, the key to helping the poor is to invest in people, to invest in Jim Heckman's agenda of making families stronger and raising human capital. And once people have those skills, they'll move to where they want to go. A surfer will go to Venice Beach in Los Angeles, you'll go where to that good niche for you. Curtis, what's changed in urban economics is a growing appreciation that people face significant migration costs, social capital and ties to place. I've met, I've met several people in the city of Baltimore who 
are tied to the place. They love the place. This is what they know. They were born there. Their family is there. They don't want to leave Baltimore, right. even though there currently aren't great economic opportunities. So, Chris, to begin to answer your question, when there are important demographic groups who have strong social ties to where they are, whether it's New Orleans or whether it's Baltimore, it becomes imperative to think about two levels of place-based policies. Place-based policies that make the place more resilient to climate change shocks and place-based policies that accelerate economic growth. Because if there's more economic growth, that that creates more opportunities for these people who have chosen to be stuck there. Let me give an example. At Johns Hopkins, President Ron Daniels is working. Johns Hopkins is famous for its biomedical research. I want it to be famous for its urban economics research, but um, but it's even more famous for its biomedical research. Doctor uh, Doctor House went to Johns Hopkins on the TV show House. There you go. Hugh Laurie is a Hopkinsite. <laughs> so, so I did not know that. Um, so um, see, analogous to Silicon Valley with Stanford and Berkeley, Johns Hopkins analogous to Carnegie Mellon with robotics. Hopkins wants to build a biotech cluster in Baltimore. Curtis, when Hopkins succeeds, a very reasonable question is how will this help black residents of the city who may only have a high school degree? Enrico Moretti, in his famous book, The New Geography of Jobs, argues that every time a city has a well-paid, high-skilled worker, that creates a multiplier effect, that it creates five local jobs that cannot be offshored to China. And so as I speak to people in Baltimore about my book, unlocking the potential of post-industrial cities. I talk about if cities like Baltimore, Cleveland, and Detroit can become skilled hubs, this has a spillover effect of creating a more vibrant service economy. Uh, so let me let you in there. That, that, that's the beginnings of the multiplier effect of helping these cities. Notice this is not asking for a handout from Joe Biden. This is about um, place-based interventions. So in this case, place-based interventions could be better public transit in the city. Another example could be lower crime and civil rights-friendly policies to reduce crime in these cities. These are examples of interventions that could begin to make these cities more attractive for skilled people to move to them. Yeah. And I mean, just talk about spillovers that you mentioned from some of these uh, place-based policies. This is something, this is exactly what you found in the case of these Chinese industrial parks, right? Because you had, once these clusters were established and up and running, then you had these spillover effects in that uh, retailers and other kind of consumption-based uh, businesses <laughs> would would pop up beside these industrial parks, right? So I'm impressed with you. You remember my paper better than I do. So to repeat your point, for the most productive hubs where you didn't have the communist state-owned enterprises, Curtis, to repeat your point about my work, and I'm grateful, and when you have a productive hub, we did observe higher quality stores and higher quality real estate being built close by. So it's a little bit like in a solar system that you're creating a new planet with new moons around it. And so, yes. And Curtis, it's very interesting that you raise that point, because if I can tell you a quick story. Eight years ago, I was approached by The Economist magazine, and they said to me, Matt, we heard you are the climate change adaptation optimist. And, And they said, can we ask you a few questions? I said, go ahead. They said, Matt, is Wall Street productive? I said, yes, it is. They said, Matt, could Wall Street flood? I said, yes, it can. They said, Matt, by the transit of property, doesn't that mean that climate change is going to destroy Wall Street? 
And I said, guys, there's the police Wall Street. But if that physical place is at risk, and if Goldman Sachs and these firms anticipate this, they will reconstitute on higher ground in a new edge city. So, Curtis, it was it was the same logic that um, the current Wall Street solves a coordination problem. Skilled people want to live and work in close proximity. And currently we do that in southern Manhattan, but southern Manhattan does not have a monopoly on productivity. And if it becomes under siege, it can move. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this ties in really well with this next question I want to ask, which is about the moving to opportunity program, which you discuss in, I think, both of your books. I found that part very interesting. And so just to quickly summarize the moving to opportunity program, it's just giving low income families in public housing, a voucher to move to low poverty neighborhoods or suburbs. And the program founder and RCT of the program, I think it was by Raj Chetty and co-authors, they found that families that moved, they were just significantly better off across a lot of margins. Uh, most importantly, I think earnings uh, and then childhood, uh, the, the outcomes of children the, of the families that moved. And in particular, what I found interesting was the finding that those families visited by housing navigators were much more likely to actually move, which kind of points to, you know, you called it high information barriers to moving to these low poverty neighborhoods. But playing kind of devil's advocate on this moving to opportunity program, doesn't the success of the program mean that low low income families are are better off or might be better off just to get a voucher and, you know, leave the the six cities you discuss in unlocking the potential of post-industrial cities in your book? So you raise several important questions. And my colleague at Hopkins, Stephanie DeLuca, from the sociology department, has been working with Raj Chetty on that Seattle project that you mentioned. So let's unpack this a little bit. So suppose that we are a poor family. If we don't get a voucher, we face a binding budget constraint that we can only live in communities where we can afford to rent housing or we live in public housing that is incredibly cheap. But because of the hyper-segregation of the poor there, our children suffer there. They don't meet middle-class people. Many people aren't working in the public sector housing. So what I very much like about your point, and this speaks to my libertarian instincts, I think you're right that both in the case of unlocking post-industrial cities and in adapting to climate change, the key issue is the quality of life of the poor. The poor face the greatest challenges in adapting to climate change. I think Jeff Bezos is going to have a very good next 50 years. And Elon Musk is already planning his escape to Mars. Uh, He has a much bigger adaptation set than I do. But it is the poor that face the violence in cities like Baltimore because they live in the tougher parts of town and that they face the greatest challenges in adapting to the harder punches that Mother Nature throws. They live in the toughest parts of cities and have access to less good health care. And by being poor, they don't have the resources that we do to afford products that can help. So Curtis, to answer your question, I am very comfortable with giving the poor, as the Biden administration focuses on progressive policies. Like Milton Friedman, I support giving the poor the basic resources so that they can vote with their feet. Because rents are so low in Baltimore, Cleveland, and Detroit, the poor concentrate there. The poor's children, they did not choose their parents. 
And so part of Jim Heckman's agenda is how do we invest more in young children so that they can achieve their full potential? And if the parents have access to housing vouchers, I think that that's a great way to expand their opportunities. Curtis, an awkward taboo issue arises with vouchers. And Raj Chetty often gets asked this question at academic conferences. People say, Raj, you are terrific, and he is terrific. Raj, as the New York Times talks about your work, and if we scale up move to opportunities such that we give vouchers to all poor people, if these individuals get a large enough voucher and move to middle-class communities, will the middle-class community's quality of life decline? So, Curtis, there is an awkward, politically incorrect debate in urban economics about the Goldilocks effect. The same debate that goes on in immigration debates, right? Yeah. And and to repeat it, 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 because this is a sophisticated show here. This is not the Howard Stern show. Uh I meant that as a compliment. So, So Raj has faced the question of, Raj, we see that children of the poor who get a voucher Good things happen for them the more they live in a good neighborhood. But what's your definition of a good neighborhood? And will the neighborhood be less good if many poor people move in? And to an economist, these are called general equilibrium effects. And we actually don't know enough here. But we've seen in America's past, uh, there was opposition to busing in the past. There is often middle class concern, whether justified or not with welcoming different people to the area. I I wish we live in a world where diversity is welcomed, but this is still a work in progress. But I also believe that every child has the right to achieve their full potential. And so I think you've put your finger on a key issue. The win-win here would be, let me say something, a point that I haven't made. Um, In the recent Syrian refugee crisis, something that interested me was the following. Why didn't we use mechanism design based on Al Roth, the Nobel laureate? Why hasn't there been more discussion of having nations reveal which nations would welcome immigrants? And how do we direct more immigrants to those places who would welcome them? My grandfather showed up from Poland in 1920 in America. Why don't we use economic mechanisms to figure out where immigrants would be welcomed? And in fact, Brandon Fuller and I wrote a piece eight years ago on the role charter cities can play in helping to mitigate the climate change challenge if we could direct climate refugees to places that actually welcome them. Uh, Because the reason I raised this is two minutes ago, I was saying with a scale up of moved opportunity, will middle class communities oppose these vouchers? We actually want to identify middle class communities who will welcome these individuals and perhaps offer them an incentive to, to welcome these individuals. Yeah, it's the same kind of nimbyism versus yimby debate, but instead of for housing, it's for people, which seems just horrible and immoral, but here we are. So I, I guess we could we could talk about this for a while, but there's a bunch of other urban policies I want to get to. And one of them is urban zoning, right? Urban zoning and land use regulation. And I want to ask you about uh, Baltimore in particular. You write that Baltimore conducted its first comprehensive rewrite of its zoning code in 40 years in, uh, I think, 2017, meaning the last rewrite was in, I think, 1971, you said. And that's just, first of all, absolutely insane to me, especially given the right the dynamics of the different uh, economic sectors in Baltimore. They've completely transformed over that time. So first, how do such antiquated zoning laws hamstring ailing and, and shrinking cities and, and prevent urban renewal? So the key counterfactual here is for parcels of land 
what would they be rededicated to? For example, in the last year in Baltimore, I lived in Harbor East that used to be a super fun site. So Curtis, I li live in a very fancy building called Liberty Harbor East, which used to be a super fun site. So that's an example of manufacturing land that, that eventually was repositioned as residential housing. Um, I do not eat the dirt. I don't know what's in the dirt. And so Curtis, what's really hard with your question is when you don't rezone, we saw this in New York City, where there were these industrial lofts in the 1970s and 80s, and people were illegally living in them, but it was funky housing near New York University because there was no longer manufacturing there. And so I love your question, and maybe we should write a paper on this, but to know what we lose from, from not updating zoning, we need to know what we would do if there weren't these regulations. I'll give an example. There are two train stations in West Baltimore. I want to sit down with you and look at what land is in walking distance to the Mark train stations. And if that is zoned for industrial, but if it's a vacant site, that's an example of inefficiency because that land, if it can be made safe and, and remove the industrial waste, could be turned into walking new urban housing to walk to the train station to get on a train to D.C. I guess a, maybe a better question then is, because you're right, you need a counterfactual in order to give a good answer to that one, is maybe using examples from the six cities in your unlocking, what are the biggest hiccups when it comes to upzoning or uh, transitioning from industrial use, no longer needed in a lot of the places in these cities, to new uh, commercial or residential use? So I think it sometimes can be a coordination failure that um, I mentioned Donald Bren before that he took a whole parcel of agricultural land in Orange County and built a new suburb. So Curtis, suppose that you're a young developer and you see a parcel of land in Baltimore close to a train station that you could purchase and reposition. But if it's next to a dirty bookstore or if there's a gas station that it has polluted the ground nearby, you might not be able to unlock the full potential of your parcel because it's adjacent to these other parcels. And so what we talk about in the book is the coordination problem. If Jeff Bezos purchased all of these parcels, like what Dan Gilbert did in Detroit, he could unlock the full potential. But if a young entrepreneur like you just purchased two adjacent properties, but if the next six properties are disgusting, if there's drug dealing in a nearby park, do you see how that slows you down from making the most from your investment? So my friend David Albui co-authored a great paper where he said that being next to a public park can either be good or bad. And if the park is clean and safe, then if you own the adjacent parcel, you'll invest in it because of the synergies. But the reverse is also true. If there's drug dealing at that park, you might choose to let your property de de degrade because it, it, it's a dangerous place. And so to an economist, we call that a multiple equilibria game. And that's an example of the challenge our cities face. That this is called a coordination failure. That if we could clean up the park in terms of litter and crime, Curtis might be more willing to invest in upgrading that property. And I guess before we move on from Baltimore, I need to ask, so if you've seen the TV show, The Wire, I'm going to ask, right, it's set in Baltimore. What did The Wire get right about the city and what did it get wrong? I want to answer that question indirectly. Because of season one, with the emphasis on drug dealing and the grid of crime, I think that many people not in Baltimore, Cleveland, and Detroit 
have a tough view of these cities. And so, Curtis, Baltimore has shrunk over the last 50 years from 900,000 to 600,000 people. That means to me that residents are leaving, but most people in America don't live in Baltimore and they're not moving to Baltimore. So for people in Baltimore either love or hate the wire, and I'll come back to why they love it in a moment. Some people don't like David Simon's creation because of its long-run marketing effect, of this having a causal treatment effect. Um, Baltimore faces competition. You can move to Washington, D.C. You can move to Philadelphia. If Baltimore is viewed as high crime and too funky, footloose people will be less likely to move there. Johns Hopkins, as it competes for Ivy League admits with these other Ivy League schools, wrestles with this issue. So Baltimore objectively needs to improve its quality of life and needs to improve its marketing of the city. Curtis, what I like about The Wire as a friend and fan of Baltimore is it highlights the diversity of Baltimore and that it's not just a little New York City, that, that, that there are charms to its neighborhoods and there are proud people and there's great beauty to the city. Uh, when McNulty's on that boat at night in, in season two, I often took that walk. There is great beauty on the water. And so, but, but there is urban poverty in each of these six cities, and we can't run away from that. Curtis, what I've tried to achieve in both of my books, in the unlocking the potential of post-industrial cities, how do we help the children of the urban poor achieve their goals? How do we do better? And it, it can't just be about good intentions. It, it really has to be about unleashing economic growth in these cities. And in my book, Adapting to Climate Change, Elon Musk and Bezos are going to adapt to climate change. How do we make it easier for the urban poor in New Orleans or in Baltimore or in the developing world to adapt to this challenge? So I'm a consistent thinker across all these books. So you bring up how, like in part of your book, you bring up how zoning can hamper climate adaptation because single family zoning, right? It often prices poorer households out of the prime or safe neighborhoods. By safe, you include climate safe, right? Meaning, meaning higher elevations. So I, I was thinking as I was reading through this, because I just read about Rio and its favelas. I'm curious, what, what's your model for what would happen to Rio's favelas, right? Essentially poor slums high up on a mountainside, safer from climate related disaster. What happens when the richer beachfront properties start to get hit by the impacts of climate change? Do these favelas get kind of displaced, taken over? Do the rich kind of just move a little inland and still get their beach land a little safer, kind of like a Florida situation? How do you model that? This is a great question. In the developing world, where we have urban slums, there's an interesting property rights issue coming back to Hernan de Soto. If we say that slum residents have property rights to the land they sit on, and one could imagine that, that this land Coming back to our move to opportunity discussion, if the slum land that the poor are on now being, since it's on higher ground, has new value to the rich, in my libertarian fantasy, this land would be auctioned off and each of the poor would get an equal share of that money, giving them a move to opportunity voucher. Because we know that the rich under capitalism always get the best resources. Elon Musk lives better than I do. Uh, and I live pretty well. But it should not be the case that the poor are displaced from the, where they currently live because that asset is now valuable to the rich. So there's a very interesting issue of takings of the slums. 
I think it comes back to your point of move to opportunity. So Curtis, to say something new, you have correctly read my book that I believe that in the big data revolution, we're going to identify where higher ground is and more middle class and poor people can live there if we upzone there. That will mean less single family housing. When I drive in a Tesla around Los Angeles, most of it is zoned for single family housing. Um, we're going to we will be better able to adapt to climate change if we upzone and live at higher density and set more of our land aside as wetlands uh, to provide urban heat island effects and to, to drain flood water. Mm-hmm. Again, what I love about your point is in a Rio, do any politicians have an incentive to protect the poor or are they on their own? So you're an expert on urban governance. I think a key question is, is in nations where the poor vote, do the poor vote? Do they know which politicians are pro-poor? And are any politicians who are pro-poor embracing a climate resilience strategy? Because the poor have the least ability to protect themselves. They need the state to step up. Does the state have an incentive to protect them? Are there politicians like AOC in the developing world? Yeah. And, and I mean, my general reaction to your question, like, do the poor vote and under what, what circumstances do they vote for the pro-poor candidate? This comes back to your emphasis on the need for information and, and accurate information and timely information, because there's been several studies by both economists and political scientists in Brazil. They've got really good municipal data, and they've shown that publishing to the public uh, audit reports on Brazilian municipalities and, and showing the performance of local mayors has an impact on voters' choice. If the mayor got a good I love card, it. they take that into consideration when they go to the ballot box. So yes, and so they, this leads to my next question, which is also related to the emphasis on information, right? It's a common theme throughout both of your, your books that just came out and as well as your work in general is the use of big data to inform effective policies. And you have a lot of examples of these. So I'm just curious to hear first, you know, what's the most effective use of big data you've seen? And, you know, if you want to relate it to climate change, great. If you want to do it in another direction, that's fine, too. And then second, what's the most creative or ingenious use of big data? So I want the most effective one, but I also want the kind of weird, weirdest, oddball, bizarro uh, idea. So this is key. In this age of big data, where electric utilities know your electricity consumption every 15 minutes, where Twitter has all of my tweets. I think I tweeted out eight times today. Curtis, what I'm excited about with the big data revolution is we increasingly know what we don't know. So for example, when those fires occurred in the the American West just a few months ago, of just uh, immediately the information we had on PM 2.5 and knowing the fire roots and how this fuels adaptation. So something I'm very excited about in environmental economics right now is the increase in the supply of climate big data. So in the recent past, Moody's and Standard & Poor were in charge of credit ratings for companies like Pepsi or Exxon. What we're now seeing with companies like Jupiter, First Street Foundation, and 427 is these companies are using satellite data to map out natural disaster risk, sea level rise risk, 
and wildfire risk. And this information is getting capitalized into home prices. It's getting capitalized into zoning plans. So th this information is helping. Cribs, one more point before I talk about what's funky. I am a fan of competition. A problem in the Soviet Union back in the 1950s is there was a monopoly for information. There was that Pravda, and you know, a plane would crash. The CIA would know that an airplane had crashed, and Pravda would say, no airplane has crashed. Even Milton Friedman could not rationally act if he doesn't know what's going on, if the local newspaper is not telling the truth. Curtis, a key issue in all of my life's work is if quality of life degrades in an area, whether it's crime or wildfire risk, that this quickly becomes public knowledge. If this information can be suppressed, like in Watergate, then a P.T. Barnum can, can sucker some naive buyer to purchase an asset there. So something that I am a believer that when people make a costly decision, like where to live their life, what house to buy, they're going to do their due diligence and seek the best information. And if they know that they don't know how risky it is, they're going to purchase, they're going to buy an option to just rent for a year and move to that place and see if it's a good place. So th th there have been several great recent papers on big data. Um, one set of guys in a paper called Heat and Learning got every American's SAT score over the last like five or 10 years. And they merged this to data on how hot it was at your local city over the previous 18 months. And they documented if you attend a school that doesn't have air conditioning, you actually scored lower on your SATs if you had been in a hot place relative to, to similar kids who had taken the SATs during a cooler time. And um, I'm glossing over some of the details, but I thought that was a very funky example of big data. And I skipped one point. They were able to document which high schools do and don't have air conditioning. And the negative correlation between in those high schools where it was very hot in the city, but where there was air conditioning, these kids scored just as well on their SATs as other kids who were in cities where it was cool. So it was the air conditioning causing this damage. And I'm assuming it was the, the poor schools that, that didn't have the air conditioning that scored. You were a good man. And, and this study has contributed to Baltimore's recent investment in installing air conditioning in its poor community schools to, to offset this. So Chris, that's a key theme in my work. The big data nerds write their correlation studies that in the past, in schools where we don't have air conditioning, kids learn less when it's hot. But the optimistic adaptation strategy is if we can pay for air conditioning, that correlation can go to zero. So that's an example. Okay. Another funky example is the following. Some guys in Europe who I don't know, but they sent me the paper. They had data on the quality of chess moves made by the world's best chess players. And they merged in PM 2.5, the, the, an indicator of air pollution outdoors. And Curtis, we both know you play chess inside. This research team documented that world-class chess players make crappier moves when it's more polluted outside. Mm -hmm. And this was their evidence that pollution is affecting cognitive ability for inside workers. Yeah, and there, there's a um, similar papers. The weird one that I saw was they they looked at the verbal complexity of politicians' speeches when they're delivered outside, and you know, sure enough, that on days where there were high levels of PM two point five, the politicians used less complex verbal language in their speeches 
than in days when there were lower levels of PM 2.5. So yeah, I'm- I've got, one, I've got one more for you. Okay. A friend of mine, a friend of mine in China sent me the following paper. We, women play two out of three sets, not three out of five in professional tennis. And what these guys noticed was the following pattern. On very polluted days in China, they'll play the first set very intensely, and the woman who wins, wins the next set 6-0. And that this is an adaptation strategy to get out of the pollution. So, so they play competitively for one set, and then that's it. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess on this topic of big data, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a bit and, and see how you respond, right? Big data requires technical expertise, right? It requires technocrats. And my main concern about this today is today, it seems that the dividing line is less about left wing, right wing split. It's more about a, a technocrat versus populist divide, right? The, the rise of populism kind of leads to the downfall of, of experts in some sense. So do you think in this world that increasingly questions facts and science that big data or the the policy experimentation that you call for can effectively sway political leaders and mayors like maybe it used to? Or do you need a, a weirdo mayor like maybe an Andrew Yang in New York in order to engage in local level experimentation these days? I love this question. Let me answer it indirectly. In my book, I celebrate, in my book, Adapting to Climate Change, I talk about Yelp ratings or Netflix ratings as signaling to private consumers, what's a good product for you, given what you've purchased in the past and what other people like you have said about this product? So Curtis, in that sense, big data helps you to make better choices and it chips away at the pessimism of behavioral economics. There's this theme in Richard Thaler behavioral economics that to caricature that we're fools. Um, big data, if we're aware of our behavioral biases, big data helps us to make better choices by affecting choice architecture. I'm grateful to Amazon's algorithms for understanding me. My wife's a little concerned because I eat too much chocolate that they recommend for me, but, uh, but they understand my preferences and I'm a little thicker because of it. But I want to pivot now to your point because what I was just saying was not a non sequitur. I was talking about how big data helps us to make better private choices in purchasing real estate, in going for a jog if it's going to be polluted or hot later. How does big data help our democracy? A few moments ago, you were talking about Abhijit Banerjee's work in India and Fred Fanand's work in Brazil about report cards on politicians. Curtis, a fantasy, and I'm older than you, so this may strike you as not a great fantasy. In my fantasy world, Big data will be used. Now, you might say, well, who's going to be this Santa Claus? Who's this trusted authority? So why do we trust Yelp and Netflix and Amazon? It's because they've given us good advice in the past. Could we have analogous big data sellers in political markets to help us better understand what politicians are confronting us with? So, Curtis, when you made your correct point about report cards in India and Brazil, I didn't push you on who's supplying them and why do populists trust them. But now I can make my point. If in political markets we can achieve, because of competition, Netflix, Yelp, and Amazon have strong incentives to make us good recommendations. Do we have sufficient competition in politics to get good recommendations from those who are rating the candidates? Why, why is Andrew Yang so funky? We have rarely have Asian candidates for president. He voiced support for the uh, uh, for basic income. He likes math, um, right? He likes math. <laughs> 
Do, do we have a system for, do we have a trusted authority? In 2021, who is a trusted authority? Who is our Santa Claus for ranking politicians? We have ways to rank products. Politicians are products. John F. Kennedy figured that out early. And that's one of the reasons he became our president. Are you getting to like political betting markets? Is, is that what you're driving towards? Our democracy will function better if voters actually vote, do not engage in rational ignorance, and are aware of the characteristics bundled into each of the choices. Mm -hmm. I'm confident that Airbnb gives us correct information for each choice we're thinking of in renting a place. Do we have equally good information when we think about electing our next president? Did we know what we were getting before we elected President Trump? Okay. Yeah, this was this is an interesting topic we could talk about a lot. I have a, a couple more questions and then and then I'll let you go. So, just on the topic of kind of technology and interesting solutions, three D printing and and prefabricated housing construction. Right, you 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 mentioned that Berkeley built a four story building in only four days. I think it was using prefabricated materials. So my question is, you know, given rapid urbanization rates across the global south, which is something my institute cares a lot about. There, there will be a need for a surge of, of housing building to accommodate these new urban residents. So do you see, you know, 3D printing and, and prefabricated housing playing a big part in this? Or, or will these technologies remain kind of a high income country sort of thing for the for the time being, at least? I don't know enough about learning by doing effects. So when Bill McKibben reviewed Bill Gates's book in the New York Times, Bill McKibben asserted that there are huge learning by doing effects. And of course, what learning by doing is, is that the average cost of producing a good like modular housing is decreasing in our cumulative experience. And if there's huge learning by doing effects in solar panels or in modulated housing, then you're right. We, there could be a huge expansion of modular, modular housing in the developing world. Curtis, in my book, Adapting to Climate Change, the reason I celebrate modular housing is it gives us a more elastic housing supply curve. Why does it take a year and a half to build a building? There's this great video on YouTube where the Chinese build a 15-story hotel in 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And hosp- my wife right, doesn't want me to stay there. Hospitals, uh, uh, well, when COVID just broke out, they, they broke they built uh, these mega hospitals within within you know days as well. Yeah. So a point that Ed Glazer makes is how much of our vertical supply curve is due to government red tape, regulations, unions, but also using earlier ideas, not modern ideas, for, for more quickly getting out the product. Because I know that I don't know the answer to your question, I want us to run this experiment. Because I do believe that learning by doing effects exist, but I don't know how large they are. And just a couple more questions. So one is one is on another adaptation policy. This one is essentially, you know, universally loved by economists, and it's the carbon tax. And I agree, a carbon tax, you know, it makes sense for high and middle income countries. I'm not sure it does in lower income countries. And I want to see if you agree with my rationale. So I'm from British Columbia, Canada, uh, right? And and BC enacted a carbon tax. It was, I think, $10 per ton of CO2 back in 2008. It's since been raised to, I think, $40, maybe a little above that last time I checked, per ton of CO2 now. But even, I'm thinking about the the global south now, even a tax at $10 per ton, which is what we had back in 2008, in low-income countries, 
I get the sense this would be a pretty severe impediment for businesses, up and coming businesses there that already have enough to contend with in these places. And then if we say, all right, well, we'll set the carbon tax at an affordable level, more affordable than $10. Well, then you're not, you're not really setting it at the social cost of carbon that Pigu says it should be at, right? Do you, do you agree, disagree? Does, it, does a carbon tax still make sense for low-income countries? One of the reasons I focus on adaptation is exactly this issue. I think that carbon emissions in the developing world are going to soar. And because of exactly what you were saying, and coming back to our earlier discussion about uh, when we talked about the American dream in India and Africa, a point that Daron Asimoglio makes in the developing world is the time consistency issue. Curtis, imagine a world where the leaders in Brazil or in Egypt could say, business people, we're going to have a low carbon tax now, but it's going to grow by 7% a year starting eight years from now. If he could credibly commit to that, University of Chicago Economics predicts we'd see a much greener profile. You'd see fewer coal-fired power plants. You'd see less use of fossil fuel because of the expectation of the ramp up. But Curtis, that's not credible. That guy's not going to be in power eight years from now Mm -hmm. unless this is a non-democracy. And the new guy may not stick to that plan. And so I'm very sympathetic to your point that to rephrase your point in I think you're right about this. The presence of poor people in poor nations makes it very difficult for the environmentalists in those countries to push for sharp decarbonization. And this is why these countries and scholars like Jeff Sachs talk about large fiscal transfers to these countries to implicitly purchase their veto, to not veto the carbon tax. But then, of course, the American taxpayer says, what? We're going to raise taxes on ourselves and we're going to transfer a huge amount of money to these guys for them to adopt roughly the same policy. Yeah. And then I guess there's a similar question around congestion pricing, which is another urban policy that you discuss for effective adaptation. As you know, right, the only kind of major cities last time I checked that have implemented congestion pricing are Singapore, London and Stockholm. Now, Singapore was by far the first, right? I think it implemented it in in 1975. And I I checked and its income per capita was around $2,500 in in US dollars. I think it was like 2010 um, levels in, in 1975. Is there a reason we don't see other lower middle or middle income countries enacting this like Singapore did? Or is, you know, is this just kind of a Lee Kuan Yew effect of technocratic governance? What's your take on that? After my adapting to climate change, I talk about imagination. So John Lennon had that song, Imagine, and maybe you and I could do a duet with me as Yoko and you as John. In the song, Imagine, John Lennon talks about, well, he doesn't talk about climate change, but he talks about a bunch of stuff. Curtis, I don't think that we have sufficient imagination of how much better our life would be under road pricing. So in the new book, I'm writing on work from home. I say that we were forced because of COVID to run this work from home experiment. And this forced us to experience work from home. But we never could have imagined what life would be like when you don't have to commute every day to work. So my short answer to why Stockholm and Singapore have not set off a chain reaction in New York and Los Angeles, despite all the traffic, is that we lack imagination 
of what life would be like. It's salient that we'd have to pay this toll, but we don't appreciate what it would be like to cruise around the city at 45 miles per hour and never see traffic congested again. Mm -hmm. When I'm in Singapore, I'm amazed of what it's like to cruise around at any hour at 45 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess that it's exactly that failure of imagination where policy experimentation and having this demonstration effect that allows you to imagine You've got it. how it helps out, right? You've got it. And, and that's actually a key theme, if I can jump in. One of the reasons I'm a fan of decentralization is to run more experiments and hope that the New York Times writes about them so that the word spreads. Because if we always have to learn our lessons the hard way, then adaptation is much harder. But if we can learn from others' experiences and have better imagination, the adaptation process is easier for the reasons you just said. And last question, I, w I wanted you to talk a bit about, in addition to being a, a professor at USC and Johns Hopkins, uh, you also have a consulting firm, Climate Economics. I like this. I find it too rare in academia where academics stay in uh, in the ivory tower a little too much and don't get out in the real world. I think it's very healthy and helpful that they apply their ideas to the real world. So do you want to talk a bit about your consulting firm and what you do and, and projects you've worked on? So, Curtis, in the past, I've worked with electric utilities who had enormous databases, but were sort of lacking the freakonomics of what do we do with these data to learn from it. So I think one of my edges is thinking creatively about how to use the big data sets that municipalities and business interests have. In this age of field experiments, there's also this potential of teaming up with economists to think about randomizations. So, for example, when you talk about those politician report cards, those guys in Brazil and India took a random set of voters and randomly assigned who would get a report card on how politicians are doing versus which ones didn't, and then subsequently test are those in the treatment group more likely to vote? In the case of my firm, Climate Economics, of trying to think about strategies at the firm level and the local government level to shrink carbon footprints and to increase climate resilience. Great. Well, that's all the questions I had for today. Matthew Kahn, thanks so much again for taking the time and, and thanks for the great discussion. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.